Oh, and kids can probably just be dismissed. I'm going to say that before I say what I was going to say. Um, I want to say, and this is something you probably know, but the temptation is real today to wow, to impress. Um, it just is. When you think about the last thing, and this won't be the last thing that I ever say to you all, I'm sure, but as kind of the lead pastor here, uh, there is a temptation to, to, man, just let this be what it doesn't need to be. Because what it does need to be is faithful, and what it does need to be is every day. There is no different sermon on a first day or a last day or any day in between except that which is faithful to the Lord. My prayer and my hope today is that God would work in power through the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us. And I just need to say that I am overjoyed and I am humbled to have been counted worthy to serve God and to serve all of you in this place over the last seven years. And I am unbelievably humbled to be able to continue to call all of you my friends. It has been a good and it has been a hard journey, which also describes our most recent journey through the book of Galatians. <laughs> Not to mention before that, as Scott and I have been reminiscing a little bit, Jonah before that, which we thought was going to be a three or four week series and turned into like 12 difficult messages, and before that, the Psalms from last summer, which were a mess, which means that we have come a year of some of the hardest sermons that I have ever preached, <laughs> through some of the hardest passages that we could have been in, and I want to say that there is no greater joy than I can have that today we would be diving into the fruit of the Spirit. There is just something awesome about the fruit of the Spirit. That isn't to say there won't be anything hard today. I'm not sure that I could preach a sermon without there being some level of hard. But what I do know is that there is a joy that I pray we would all have today. There is life in these verses that should come even before we may find ourselves convicted and realizing we need to go deeper in with the Lord. This passage this week has been, first of all, a joy to prepare. And it has been a worship, and it has filled my heart with thankfulness so we are in Galatians chapter 5, and if you've been with us, then you know that we're starting in verse 22. This leaves us out of the difficulty that Scott brought us through last week, which also brought us to the wonderful gospel, and how we as a church are meant to be those who restore one another when we find ourselves in sin. We bracketed this passage with Scott's message last week, so he did everything before it and everything after it, and I'm going to dive right down the middle of it. And so Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, let me read that for us. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Friends, I want to dive right into this, but first to pray. Lord God, I pray that our hearts would be open to you today. I pray that our hearts would be fixed on your word today. That the words that I would speak today would be your words for us. And God, even as we dive into a ton of other scripture, God, I pray that that your word would stand out beyond anything else that I might utter today. That we would be a people of the word who hear and listen and know your word. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen. I want to start, first of all, with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And, of course, we're going to break that down a little bit. We're going to start with the word spirit. Which spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for really any amount of time, you should know that. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who is sent as a gift into the lives of believers by God the Father and by God the Son on the day of Pentecost. In addition to every day that you and I, or you and I, that we have come to the Lord in salvation, we are given the Spirit. I want to go to the book of John, chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes, the Helper is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, you will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. We discover that the Holy Spirit is the Helper, and the, the Helper is the one who is going to bear witness about Jesus and about the Father. And enable us to bear witness. John 16, just a few verses later, verses 7 through 13. Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit comes and the Spirit comes into us. And as a result, the world will be convicted. Now, just take note of that really quick. The Spirit who is living in us and you and I is somehow going to convict the world. How? Well, because you and I need to open our mouths, but not just our mouths, we need to open up our lives, that the world would see what life can be and is with the Spirit in our lives. That should be a stark contrast to the ways of the world and what the world does. So the Spirit convicts. Moving forward, actually in the middle of that, to John 16, 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. So the spirit of truth comes and will guide the believers, will guide those who love Jesus to follow him. He will speak to us. He will lead us. He will guide us. And everything he speaks and guides will come from the Father and from the Son. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we have to talk about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. And it is a beautiful thing that, that you and I, everyday ordinary believers who have come to Jesus in faith and salvation, have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and dwelling with us. We could preach on this all day, on just this aspect. I won't, because we've done that. We've preached all through John. We've preached every one of these passages about a year ago. So you go back to our podcast, you go back to the YouTube, you might find some of those if you're interested that's the Spirit, right? The other part of the fruit of the Spirit is what the fruit. It's the fruit. Now first, before we dive into what the fruit is, what is it not? And see, the Bible uses fruit in a specific way. So first of all, the fruit is not a gift. The fruit of the Spirit is not a gift. It is not something like our salvation, which is offered to us freely, but which we often say must be grasped, grabbed, and accepted. Okay, that is a gift. If I hand you a gift, you can choose to accept it or not. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't a gift. Nor is the fruit of the Spirit a work. It is not something that we can make for ourselves. It is not something that we can simply wake up one day and decide to pursue. There is no checkbox at the beginning of each one of these nine things that we read about in this passage. You cannot wake up and say, today I am going to be patient. I mean, you can say that. It won't do you any good. So not only is it not a gift, it's not a work, nor, hear this, is it something that we earn. The fruit of the Spirit are not given to us because we somehow graduate from one level of faith to another, nor are the fruit of the Spirit given to us because we accomplish something or because we devote in obedience something specific that suddenly we get done and the Lord rewards us. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. So what is it? If it's not a gift, and it's not a work, and it's not something that we earn, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Now, you'll keep noticing, and for some of you it may be a bit of jarring language, I keep saying, is it, not are it. <laughs> because the fruit of the Spirit is singular here in the Bible. We often, when we talk about them, talk about the fruits of the Spirit. But the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit. And this is actually important. Because they come together as one. And church, what we need to know as we begin to dive into this discussion is that the absence of one or more of the fruits of the Spirit should give us considerable concern in our lives over the fruit of the Spirit. Considerable concern because Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, 
Again, this is Matthew 12, 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Look, it's an either or. It's an either or. He goes on to say in verse 34, and he's speaking to the Pharisees. I hope he's not speaking to any of us here when he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So the reason it should concern us if we are missing any of or all of the fruit of the Spirit is because fruit is what naturally flows out of what we are. If you're good, you produce good fruit. If you're bad, you produce bad fruit. And Jesus makes a distinction here, and he says you're either going to do one or the other. And so if you were to weigh the fruit of your life, would it weigh out to good, or would it weigh out to the bad. See, fruit not being a gift, not being a work, not being something we earn is the natural, or we might say the supernatural, pouring out of what we most are. And that's important as we come to the list of the fruit of the Spirit and as we look at what each one of those words mean. Because according to Jesus, the fruit someone bears is who they are. Not only who they are, but who they're attached to. John 15, verse 1 and on, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He says, already you you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The fruit of your life matters because the fruit of your life tells everybody around you, and it tells you who you are. Are you living out the fruit of the Spirit? which ultimately comes from abiding in the vine in Jesus Christ, or are you living out evil, bad, terrible, rotten fruit? And I love the image of fruit here. I think one of the best things to do with fruit is to squeeze it and get the juice. I mean, I like eating fruit, but sometimes drinking fruit is just so much better. To get the juice out of a piece of fruit, you squeeze it, you pressure it, you cut it, you squash it, 
right? You crush it. And the, the question that I have for you, Christian, is when you get squeezed, what comes out of you? I mean, when the, when the pressures come and the, the, the blades come and the, the grinding comes of your life, what comes out of you? Is it fruit of the Spirit or is it fruit of something else? Is it the juice of the Spirit or is it the juice of the flesh? You can't get the juice without the crushing. And you think about our lives, so often we see what we are made of only when the, the world crushes in. Friends, what I want us to think about before we even dive into the fruit of the Spirit, before we get into these, these words that we'll look at in just a minute, I want us to be absolutely sure that we know that what we're talking about is the best way for you and I to have confidence in our salvation. I remember as a youth group kid, and I don't know who told me this or if I just imagined it and built it up in myself, but I remember reading all these things in John, particularly about the fruit and the fruit that comes out, and I remember feeling really, really convicted because somebody, I think it was a youth pastor and they were wrong, told me that the fruit that should be expected is that I would share my faith with people and they would come to know Jesus. And the fruit was the results of evangelism. Now for me, this was really damaging. Because if you know me, you know that I have never experienced the spiritual gift of evangelism. God made me to be a discipler. Praise the Lord, I get to disciple some evangelists and watch them make Christians. Something you may not know about me is I still don't think there's a single time in my life when I one-on-one -on -one have led somebody to Jesus. Now, I've shared the gospel a lot of times one-on-one. -on -one. I've never seen the results of that. Some of you are like, man, that's me too. And for some of us, that caused us to stop sharing our faith with people. Because if nothing's ever going to come of it, then why do it? Now that isn't to say that I haven't led people to Jesus and I've had the joy in preaching to see that happen in a different way. And I've had the joy of, of working with, with men and with women and with teenagers and seeing them lead people to Jesus. And I will tell you, it's awesome seeing somebody come to Jesus in the ministry that you do. It's even more awesome when you minister to somebody who then leads somebody else to Jesus. It's awesome. But see, here's the trouble. There have been times in my life where I believed the lie that because I didn't have this gift or this trait in my spiritual life that I must not be saved because the fruit wasn't showing up. The trouble is, is that the fruit Jesus is talking about is the same fruit we read about in Galatians. And that's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the result of evangelism or the fruit of the result of any other spiritual gifting or practice that we may make. 
If we evaluate our relationship with Jesus based on how many people we're able to lead to Jesus, most of us are going to be pretty depressed. But it's not our job to make Christians. It's our job to be faithful to preach the gospel and to share the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to change hearts. I got no control over what the Holy Spirit does in somebody's life when I've shared the gospel. My only job, my only role is to be faithful in speaking it. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do in you through this sermon, but I have faith and confidence that he's going to do something in you and the person sitting next to you. But you might all ignore me. And that's between you and the Lord, not between me and you. And so church, as we think about this, I want to get really, really practical for a moment because there are those who teach that the best way to, to know our salvation is through the existence of certain and specific spiritual gifts in our lives. They will tell you that if you don't exhibit a certain gift of the Spirit, that you must not be saved. But the scriptures are really clear about this. That the Holy Spirit gives gifts in certain measures and different measures to different people in different quantities for different reasons based on different people's faith. This is important. Because we look at a brother or sister in the church and we think, man, I wish I had their gifting. I gotta tell you, if everybody had the gift of preaching... Where would the singing be? If everybody had the gift of prayer, then where would the preaching be? If everybody had the gift of hospitality, right, then where would the going out be? And so we think about this, is that it is never true that we evaluate our salvation based on the gifting God has given us. But let me be clear on this. We should be very quick to evaluate our spiritual life on the fruit, on the Spirit's fruit in our lives. We should be quick to look at our own lives and do that first before you start looking at anybody else's life. And think, is the Spirit's fruit pouring out of me today? Is who the Spirit is in my life clear to me and to my family and to my friends, to my church and to my community? That is what we should be doing. It is who we are. And if it's not who we are, it will not flow out of us. Jesus is really clear about this. What else do we see here? Now, before we get to the fruit, I want to look at two more things. The first moves us to verse 23. Okay, chapter 5, verse 23, the very end of it. At the end of the list, Paul writes this, against such things there is no law. Now, two things really quick here. He says against such things. What does that mean? It means that the nine things we have in this list, contrary to what I believed even coming into this sermon this week, is not an exhaustive list. Why is that important? It's important because some of us are checkbox Christians and we think, man, I got this. I got these nine things. I can do this. But it doesn't end there. There are other, other virtues that come from the Spirit in our lives that Paul doesn't mention here. Just a few of them. Number one, hope. Number two, humility. 
Number three, generosity. See, there's other things that if the Spirit is in our lives, we are going to exude these things too. Paul is not seeking to be exhaustive here. And as I was meditating on this and thinking about this this week, here's what I came up with. We may be finite people. We may be small. We may have limited capacity. But the Holy Spirit who lives in us is unlimited and infinite. Amen? What that means is that his fruit in our lives also will be what? Unlimited and infinite. Amen. Amen. Like we in him, with him in us, are no longer a finite being. We can grow in infinite ways, particularly in the fruit that would pour out of us. And just imagine what the world would be like if every Christian, full of the Holy Spirit, would exude nothing but the Spirit everywhere they go. And the qualities and the traits and the characteristics of the Spirit in our lives. I mean, I get chills over that. Just to think about a group of 60 or 80 people here in Lahana, Colorado, if we were the only ones doing it. What would happen to the 6,000, 7,000 people here? It could change a community. So church, I want us to know that he talks about such things because it's not just limited here. There's more. We can't even get into all of it today. Paul then says as part of that that there is no law against these things. And that is like the understatement of Scripture. Because not only is there no law, and what he's saying is this, they are the law. (laughs) We fulfill the law by being this. This is why I read the scripture earlier in our service from Ezekiel. As God promises to put a new heart and a new spirit into us, that we would live for him. Because that is the fulfillment of the law. That is the purpose of the law. Is that we would be people who would live out all of this, transformed by the Spirit, to exude the qualities of God from our own lives. Man, I'm excited about this. I hope you can see that. You should be excited about this. And so church... We want to move now to the list that we're given here. Now, Scott said really well last week, we never really want to preach a list. And, and I'm trying to avoid preaching the list, but it's really exciting, and it's really easy to preach this list. His list was hard. My list is happy. Okay? But I want us to remember, even as we get into this, that, the, that we're not limited to the list. Because I already mentioned three things, hope, humility, and generosity that are not a part of this. And there's more. And there's more. What I want to do, though, as we look at this, is drive ourselves straight to the feet of Jesus. And here's why. When you think about the history of the world, has there been, will there ever be someone who exudes the fruit of the Spirit better than the one who sends the Spirit? The answer is no. 
Jesus, you look at Jesus and you meet someone when you read about him in, in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament and even the prophecy that leads up to him. What you read about is one who is and only ever has exuded the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in everything he did and everything he still does even now today with, new, with believers and with new people coming to him. And so we want to look at this and we're going to read a lot of scripture. And if you're taking notes, you've got to be ready to write the references down. Because you're going to want to read these later. And so we get to these, and we see the first one is love. And there's a reason the first one is love, because this is the greatest one, and it actually sums up all of them. And what the Bible means when it uses this word, and it is agape love, which is a self-sacrificing, other-giving love. We look at, John 15, 9 through 13, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now we're going to come back to that joy in just a minute. John 15, 12 tells us, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you think about Jesus, and we think about his death on the cross, so what do we know? He gave his very life for his friends, but not just then. In fact, the very beginning of Jesus' life, the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas time, he gives up the power the glory, the splendor, and he trades that for the clothes of you and I, sacrificing all that he is in love. You got joy. Like I said, we come back to this joy. Church, Christian joy is not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in our status in and with God. And when you think about Jesus in this, what we know is that Jesus had, what? The perfect relationship with God. As part of the Trinity, part of the God, he was in perfect relationship. Hebrews 12, 2. The author writes, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, this is exactly where the Son of God is supposed to be, sitting on the throne. John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, that your joy, or that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, 20 through 22, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. In church, there are times when we weep and lament. Because this life is hard, and this life is broken. But Jesus says, But the world will rejoice. You will be my sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn... You will be sorrowful, not my sorrowful. You will be sorrowful, but your, joy, your sorrow will turn into joy. The joy that we have as believers comes straight from him. It exudes from him into us. And what I want us to think about in that is if we are going to be a joyful people living the same fruit of the Spirit, the same joy, should not our joy also become your joy? And your joy, and your joy, and the joy of the people on the outside of the church who don't yet know him. 
You cannot be a miserable Christian. You can't. If you are a miserable Christian, you're probably not a Christian. Because his joy is our joy. And he is full of joy. And it exudes and it pours out. Peace. John 14, 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus was a man and is the man who is still at peace. At peace with God, at peace with us. Even while we were at war with him, he was making peace with us. And that peace he gives to us. Why? Because it exudes out of him just like joy does. And just like love does. And as his people, should it not also, the peace that we have come pouring out of us, the confidence that we can have, that we have a loving Father who's sovereign and good. And he loves us, church. Do you have that peace that would calm the fears and anxieties of the world? Next up is patience. Now, what you need to know about patience is the word here is one of my favorite words. I think I mentioned this just last week or two weeks ago. This patience here is a long-suffering patience. It's not a vague patience. I just kind of endure things. No, it's, it's that Jesus endures you <laughs> and me. First Timothy 1.16, I love this because Paul obviously is coming after he didn't know the, the living Jesus pre-death and resurrection, but here's what he says. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Jesus Christ showed patience, long-suffering to Paul, who he should have wiped off the planet for murdering his believers. And instead, Jesus endures Paul in his sin patiently until the day that Paul would turn his life over to Jesus. How wonderful is it that Jesus in his life then and now, even in heaven, sitting on the throne of God, is patient and long-suffering with people such as you and I. Let me ask you a question. How imagine, or just imagine this. How hard would church community be if we were not patient with one another? What if we only gave people one chance? What if we only gave people a hundred chances to get it right? God, praise God that we in the fruit of the Spirit, get to live like Christ, being patient with one another. I love that. I love that. Next up, kindness. Kindness. And I got to say, when you look at Jesus and you think about kindness, I mean, there's 12 sermons right there. There are too many to count. Acts of kindness. Here's one. And I love this. I, I stole this from somewhere. I don't know where, but I stole this from somewhere. Luke 22:51. 51. 
Jesus is getting arrested. One of his disciples pulls out a sword, cuts a guy's ear off. There's chaos, there's noise, there's mess. Jesus is being arrested. What does he do? He puts his ear back on. That's a kindness. Right? In all the chaos that's going on, Jesus, in his infinite kindness, manages in just this little moment, this little minute, to fix the guy's ear. I mean, he could have just let that go. You know, we could have given him a pass. He's getting arrested. There's a lot going on for him right now. What does he do? He pays attention to this one guy. You think about all the moments in Jesus' life when he's going somewhere and he gets interrupted. And what does he do? One little kindness, a word spoken at the right time, at the right moment, with the right power that changes somebody's life. I love this one because it's not hard to be kind. Not if the Spirit's in your life. Because we have received every kindness from God. And he pours that out upon us, and we too should pour that out on others around us. Titus 3, 4 through 5 tells us, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Church, we are saved because of the kindness of God. We're saved because of the kindness of God. Not only that, but the goodness, which is our next fruit. Acts 10.38, in one of Peter's sermons, he says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's doing good. Kindness and goodness go hand in hand. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. Hear this, he is the good shepherd. It is who he is. It is who he exudes to be. It is what pours out of him. Everything about him was good. Our next fruit is faithfulness. Here, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ, hear this, is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Church, Jesus is faithful. As a son, he is faithful to his church. It's you and I. And he calls us through the Spirit in our lives to the same faithfulness. Look at Jesus in the garden, faithful at the cost of his life. 
We look to gentleness next. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. You can't speak about gentleness without Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, Jesus was gentle. It's even in this verse that he declares his character to be so. Now, if you've been around here very long, you know there's a book called Gentle and Lowly. And if you haven't read that, talk to Pastor Scott. He will make sure you have a copy of it. Because for some of us, this has changed our lives to think about Jesus being always and constantly gentle and lowly. He responds to us in gentleness. And and this brings up a great question. What is gentleness? And I want to give you my definition because I'd like you to have that before I go. Gentleness is strength contained. Gentleness is strength contained. Church, you have no gentleness if you have no ability to not be strong. To not be gentle. Gentleness is not weakness. It's not inability. Gentleness is recognizing that you could smite everyone around you and you don't. Jesus, with a word of power, could have spoken and lightning could have flashed out of the sky and destroyed everybody who heard him. But he reacted in gentleness and in long suffering and he endured them. Church, I say this because sometimes we get this idea that we need to, that we just need to be weak. (laughs) And that's not what we're called to in gentleness. Men, if you're going to lead your homes with gentleness, it's not because you are incapable. It's because you are very capable of causing great harm. And you don't because you love those in your household. Okay? And that leads us actually to the next and to the last of the fruit of the Spirit listed here, and that is self-control. We look to Jesus in his great temptation, and you could read this entire passage. We're not going to. Luke 4, 3 through 4, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, I I want you to notice he's full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he had been baptized and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He is full of the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus had enough self-control that after 40 days he was offered an easy solution. And you need to recognize how easy this solution is. Jesus has a, has a loaf of bread. I mean, he has an eight-course meal in front of him. This is not hard for him. Most of us won't make it through a day of not eating before we're like, just sign me up, devil. But Jesus has the self-control. I look at him again, and this is reflective of his gentleness. Jesus walks into the temple, and there is injustice, and there is crime happening all around him. And he begins turning tables and whipping. Do you know exactly how much force Jesus needed to use in that moment? He used exactly as much force as was needed. I walk into that room, man, somebody's going to die. Because I don't have that kind of self-control. 
But Jesus has that kind of self-control to control. He is never consumed by somebody else's situation, somebody else's problems, somebody else's person. He's in full control of every word, every action, everything he does because he's full of the Spirit and he knows who he is in God. Now, we could keep going. I mean, you cannot talk about Jesus without talking about the fruit of the Spirit because he is the author of the fruit. He is the one who sends the Spirit into our lives so that we can be more like him. So what is our role? We've already said this isn't a work. It's not a gift. It's not a virtue that we can just kind of pick up and be. So what is our role? Well, Paul is going to give us some pretty important things here. What is our role? We look at our life, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, wow. I mean, especially when you compare it to Jesus, I am not measuring up, and you won't. But church... These things should be in our lives if we're Christians. And let me just tell you, if these things are not in your life, then this is a good moment to take a good, hard look at your life and ask the question, is the Spirit in your life? If these things, if the fruit, if there is no fruit of the Spirit in your life, it may be because the Spirit isn't in your life. If the Spirit's not in your life, then you don't know Jesus, you are not saved. Because when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. It does not happen at a later date down the road when we make a deeper commitment to the Lord. That is a false theology as well. So what do we, what do, we do? Well, Paul tells us. Don't you like Paul for that? What does this look like? How do we increase, if you will? Well, Paul gives us a couple simple things. And remember, this is not a reward for doing good. This is who we are. It's who we have become, the Spirit in us, pouring these things out of us. Look with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. He writes, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its de and desires. That's peace or step one, if you will. Now I will tell you, there have been a lot of times in preaching of the book of Galatians in the last four months or five months, whatever it's been, where I have and where Scott and I have wondered why it is we chose this book. <laughs> Man, get some hard messages coming out of this thing. And I will tell you, as a pastor, when you, when you like prayerfully get into the word and decide what you're going to preach on next, the Holy Spirit points out all these great little cool verses that you're like, oh, it'll be great to preach on that. It'll be great to preach on that. You know what the Holy Spirit also does? He blinds your eyes to the stuff that's going to be awful to cover. Okay, and we are a church, and I love this about us, who does not ignore or put aside any passage of scripture. We get to it, we preach it, whether we like it or not. It's good for us, it's good for you. And man, it's been a, been a wonder here, but then I get to this verse, and I realize this is my last sermon here, and I am overjoyed at this verse. I really am. And you say, well, Matt, this is the worst verse in all of them. We're talking about crucifying our flesh. 
If you've been here at Calvary very long, you have heard me say the phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a quote from the Puritan writer John Owen. He wrote an entire book on this one little piece of scripture, not this one, actually another one. And this is one of my favorite phrases and is one, something that I, I do desperately want to leave with you all. And here's the thing. I have never taken that piece and this piece together, and this piece matters as much as and feeds that one so much more. Hear this, verse 24 again. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, past tense, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You and I, who are Christians, who have given our lives to Jesus, confess that he is our Lord and Savior, if we've done that, have crucified our flesh, our desires. We read about the works of the flesh in that last passage. Scott brought us through that. I brought us through that the last two weeks. We've crucified those things. This is, this is an important word. Why? Because we worship the crucified Savior. Paul is not about to use a word like crucified without great intent and great meaning. It is a loaded word for Christians. Amen? This is a big deal. It is a powerful image because our Lord and Savior was crucified. And so we cannot naturally speak about this without picturing exactly what he means. And you know, you know, and I know that the crucifixion is a brutal way to kill someone. It was a brutal way to kill our Savior. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Hundreds of thousands of people got saved when they watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ 20 years ago. Why? I don't care if you like it or not. I've got a lot of qualms with it. But what happened is people watched Jesus Christ, or at least an iteration of him, a portrayal of him, go through the brutal death that he went through. And they woke up. And they realized that he did that for you and for me. Now I want to say, none of this what I'm about to say is original to me. Something like this can't be original to me because God's been speaking it for a long time. Now, I will tell you, I'm going to read straight out of this guy's book. This is Philip Graham Ryken's commentary on the book of Galatians. This book is my friend for the last four months. <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, Consider how appropriate it is for sinful nature to be crucified. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. It was reserved for hurting criminals, for traitors and murderers, the scarlet society. But what is more shameful in the sinful nature which rebels against God and murders the human soul? Crucifixion was a painful way to die, as painful means of execution as human beings have ever devised. It was excruciating in the full proper sense of the word. Likewise, the modification of saying is painful. It's not painful to the body, as if we had to abuse ourselves in order to please God, but the soul. The reason sanctification is such a painful process is that there's always something excruciating about putting our sins to death. Our sinful nature loves them so much that we secretly hope that they will live. Crucifixion is a painful way to die. He goes on to say, crucifixion was a gradual way to die. 
with its victims often lingering on the cross for days before they drew their last breath. Commentator John Brown wrote, the crucifixion was a punishment appropriated to the worst crimes of the base, it sort of criminals and, and produced death, not suddenly, but gradually. Similarly, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh here below, but they affix to the cross and they determine to keep it there till it expires. Till it expire. When it comes to eliminating sin, there are no shortcuts, only a long, slow, painful death. It's painful and it's gradual. He says, the last thing to be said about crucifixion is that it is always final. Those who were crucified may have died slowly, but they always died eventually. Because soldiers ensured the victims were not taken down from the crosses until they were really and truly dead. The same is true. The spirits war against the flesh. God is not fighting a losing battle. The sinful nature has already received its mortal blow, and the spirit will see to it that it remains on the cross until it expires. The question is not if it will die, but only when. I want you to have hope. Some of us have been struggling with certain and specific and many sins for many, many years. For many, many, many instances. But if that sin has been crucified. If we have put it on the cross, it's, it's going to die. It hasn't yet. Maybe because some of us are still kind of feeding that. Like we go out and we look at our sin nailed to the cross and we bring it a snack. When we come out and we kind of tend to its wounds a little bit. We kind of love it and hug it, caress it. John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Church, Paul writes here that we need to have already put our flesh up on the cross and let it die. I love that. I love that. Because it gives us the picture of how that works to put our sin to death. It is not so simple as just simply saying, All right, I'm not going to do this anymore. Sometimes it takes time and effort and energy and it takes a long time. But church, hear this. God, the spirit in our life will kill it. And that leads us to the second part. And that is what we see in our next verse here. Paul writes, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul is painting us a picture of is crucifying our flesh and then living into the Spirit. And this is important because this is why this is not a workspace thing. This is not why, how this is something we earn as we put our flesh to death. It's not a reward given. But what happens is as we put our flesh to death, the Spirit fills the gap. The Spirit fills what we, the, the space left behind from putting our sin and our flesh on the cross, the Spirit fills that with himself. And out of the same place that was works of the flesh comes the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, oftentimes it's those very things of the works of the flesh from last week's list as we put those to death that the Spirit fills those places and the opposite comes for us. Where we were selfish before, now we're giving. Where we were envious before, now we're just thankful for everybody else's gifts. Okay? 
When Paul writes that we need to keep in step with the Spirit, he's using military language. This is the language that would be used to call a soldier into formation, but not just into formation, but to faithfully and obediently follow that formation in all of their orders alongside all of the other soldiers around them. To be in step with the Spirit is the image of seeing or watching soldiers, first of all, march together, in step, in rhythm. But not only stepping in rhythm, but also running in rhythm, living in rhythm. See, the thing about soldiers is they spend enough time together and they start just doing it together. And that's the image that Paul is giving. And I love that because it's not just to you, it's to us. You literally cannot be in step with the Spirit by yourself. Because the Spirit calls us together to be in step with what he wants and what he calls us to. I think this is why right after this in verse 26... Paul writes, let us not be become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Because he knows the very thing that's going to be first to call us out of step with the Spirit is how you and I interact with one another. How the church interacts with one another. The first thing that's going to call us out of step with the Spirit and out of step with the church is envy. Right? It's conceitedness. It's provoking one another. And he says, don't do that. He says, be in step with one another. How do we do that? Number one, we must be in step with our salvation. We must be in step with our salvation. Number one, that assumes you're saved. I pray that you are. If you're not yet, if you've never given your life to Jesus, today's the day. Come speak with me, Scott, somebody else here that you know loves Jesus. Let's talk about what it means to be saved so that you can even become in step The second thing we need to do is be in step with the Word of God. It is through the Spirit working in the life of Paul and other authors, writers of the Bible, that we have the Bible. To be in step with the Spirit is often to know and to live and to follow the Word of God. The Word of God works in partnership with the Spirit in our lives even now. And church, let me just say, and I've already said this, but let me say it again. To be in step with the Spirit is to be in step with other people who are also in step with the Spirit. You cannot be in step with the Spirit by yourself. You cannot be. And every time we see somebody try, they usually trip over their own two feet and fall in the mud at, at best. So church, what do you exude when the way the world crushes in? Is it the things of the flesh or is it the things of the spirit? Church, what do you want to exude? And may we urge each other and push each other on to the fruit that we are called to and the fruit that comes because the spirit is in our lives. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for today, for your word, the joy of your salvation, the fruit of the spirit that lives, or that comes from us because you live in us. God, I'm so thankful for this word and every word that you've led us to, Lord. And I pray 
that today we would go from this place with the assurance that we can have because the fruit, your fruit, is, is exuding. God, I pray that we would love you. I pray that that would be known by everybody around us. It would be a fruit that could be told and seen. And God, we pray that you would work in us. As we come now to the time of communion, the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be moving in us to lead us to conviction. God, as we prayed even earlier, as we saw in your scriptures earlier, that if there's sin in our lives that we need to lay down, that we need to be crucifying because it should have already been crucified, Lord, I pray that we would do so. We would nail that to the cross. God, that in the time of communion, we'd come to you in confession and in repentance.